This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, we got another show, another really action-packed show going on here. We're talking to the son of the mom that we talked to last week, right? Grandson Chuck, he's uh, the owner of this house. Oh, the owner of the house. Quite a project that was finished in, I guess, record time? Was it record time? We're, we're getting to be record okay. time. Yeah, we're, we're wrapping up the job as we speak. Uh, we're, we're coming over the hump. Chuck's going to give his insight on why he chose us and some of the things that he can have our listeners understand and, and give him some advice for our listeners on how they chose a contractor uh, how the job's going, is anything that he can give advice for for our listeners okay. to walk through when they hire somebody across the nation. Okay. So, hey, Chuck, thanks for coming on Your Valuable Home Podcast and doing this. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Last year, we were chatting. We met for the first time. We're just talking about putting a, an in-law suite on for your mom. After we talked, what was running through your mind? Because I know you spoke to a couple different other contractors of trying to hire somebody. Well, initially, it was I was in a world that you know I had never been in before, so I wasn't sure. I, I kind of felt blind through the process. What I had done is I had spoken to a, a number of different other contractors, uh, including you, and I could see the vast difference in the outline of how things were going to go. A lot of contractors, they all said, yes, we could do it. But they always wanted to lead off with money down and, you know, and about how long it would take them to get it done without showing any products or even interviewing my mother to see what she wanted. Kevin did a great job with that because he would only meet with both of us at the same time. And so we were all on the same page from the beginning. He outlined everything, was more focused on what my mother wanted, what the job was going to cost and when we were going to start paying money. How many organizations did you look at, Chuck? There was one locally I did a, a considerable amount of, of speaking with, but it was more, I was getting a sales pitch the whole time. And I had a little bit of idea of what money, how much money we wanted to spend. And he was artificially low, and which I saw as probably a point of danger, if you will, because it was just, it just seemed too easy for him to to say what we needed to hear, but doing, you know, looking at the job as we were going through, you, you could see the, the zeros were going to start adding up as we progressed through the process. Yeah. Not only that, but they come back at a later date and say, well, we ran into this and we didn't anticipate that and blah, 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 blah. And, and of course, yes. it was up, right. Yeah. Of course. Yes. It was up. Well, that never walk, happens. Walking, walking up the cost. <laughs> yeah. We've already ran into the problems. We fixed them all. And still, you know what? And overall, some of the things we did, it's actually less cost than I quote them. Your mom just said she got uh, Kathy's price and it was $500 lower. Yes. So we're, some of the things we're doing, um, I had some stuff Cabinets, at the shop. Cabinets, yeah, cat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it was some uh, products that were, she had some stone that was, uh, we're asking, but we took some of that off because I, I didn't think we needed it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with us, we, we always have some stuff lying around. I, I, I always give to homeowners. So there was some insulation on like the outer wall that I, I had some extra. Mm -hmm. No charge for it. I mean, there's no sense in nickel and dime people. And and whatever that invoice that was listed already up there, we're just, that's, that's our bill. I mean, that's where almost done the job. There's no add-ons for us. It's, it is what it is. That's what you got. We ran into the problems, but still, what's the sense of trying to nickel and dime somebody? Cause you know what that does? Yeah, it, it comes back at you. It upsets people. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I said, no, we're, we don't do that. Just, it's nothing big. It was nothing urgent. Anything we found, there a little bit of rot on the floor. I fixed it again, no charge. What's the, it's not a big deal, but that's the things we do. I always try to tell contractors, 
when you start nickeling diming people, they don't like that. Now I could see some understands, but if you're, you know, hey, you got some plywood damage, well, throw me like 300 bucks for it. And you start adding that up, 300 here, 300 there. It's going to add up pretty quickly. Homeowners don't want to hear that. So if you can come in and give a good budget where you can work and then do a little extra work if you have to for free, homeowners are going to love it. You're going to get more work out of it. It's worked for 34 years. Well, you're going to get referrals out of it too. That's what we yeah. do. And that's yeah. how we, we try to push it. I know you and I talked earlier when you saw my schedule. And I remember you mentioned a couple of days ago, you said, uh, hey, I got your schedule. And I said, do you think that uh, we're on schedule? And you started laughing. What did you say about our scheduling time? I said, you're probably a little ahead of the schedule. Yeah. But when you got the schedule, when I first put it out, did you think we were going to stick to that time? No, everything was scheduled. There was no flexibility in that, in the, in those timelines. Uh, as far as what I could see with my limited knowledge, uh, but you've uh, proved me wrong, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when I was talking to your mom at the time, we were at uh, nine days, uh, which was probably even by the time we have to finish everything else. I think all the inspections, it was less than two weeks. So it was that Saturday we actually started heavy framing. To that following Friday, the drywalls was installed. So that that less than two weeks. And it's a nice sizable addition. It's got a, a big size bedroom that walks around to a very good size bathroom, family room. Of the other people you uh, talk, the other contractors you talk to, what did some of them quote is uh, in terms of a time frame? What did they tell you? Uh, they well, they they were just they wanted. They, we never really got that far because what happened was they kept pushing me to do all these designs and use their designers for the outline of the project, and then you know they wanted me to to pay for all of those architectural drawings and all that stuff up front before I even knew what we wanted, and it was just they were just trying to to rope us into their sales pitch and to be in the driver's seat the whole time. And I felt like it was, I wasn't comfortable working that way Mm. with Kevin. It was, what do you want? And I can do a, B and C, or we can make an option D and I can mix all these together and make something else. So he was very informative and open to what we wanted to do from the very beginning. How Mm -hmm. much money did I take as a deposit or (laughs) zero? (laughs) How about halfway through the job? Did I take any money? Zero. That right there makes feel people feel comfortable that the job's almost done before I started receiving money. Because when people, I know what I can do. It's just trying to relay that to homeowners. But homeowners don't, hey, look, that's why you tell people, take out the radio, the, the magazines, all the awards that we did. Take all that out of the equation. If I don't take your money and I'm knee deep into a project this big, mm-hmm. they're going to trust you a little bit more as a contractor because that's something that they know that they're getting a good job. Because somebody doesn't usually normally not take money if they're not very good because the job doesn't go smooth or it's not going in plan. And if you don't want to work with the homeowner, uh, it's, it's not going to be very good for the contractor homeowner relationship. But with this, by not doing it, I, I just feel that it, it works better this way. Cause I, w- I can tell you what I'm going to do. I need to show you and prove to what I can do and get the job done. Mm-hmm. That's the most important part. It's not just, you know, in the beginning and Chuck said, it's all about the sale. How can I sell you? What, what, what words can I say to you that I'm going to be able to sell you? and get the job and that's where people sometimes he knew it that it was just somebody's just trying to get a sales pitch to get the job uh, i rather give people the uh, the knowledge before we sell and knowing what you're going to be getting with us than trying to sell you and hey sign here before we go any further mm-hmm. so i tell people you don't have to use this yeah, it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense i mean it, they're good selling tips no matter what kind of business you're in true yeah true is there any other advice chuck that you can give our homeowners that you went through that felt comfortable with dealing with us or and what we did that made a an impact uh, the biggest thing was dealing with you, your guys, your workers, all the contractors have been there have been treating my mother like gold. And, and that is something, this is probably one of the biggest decisions and projects she's ever taken on in her life. And to make her feel comfortable with you guys being there. I mean, she's making you lunch and making sure you guys have enough food <laughs> and, and water and soda and stuff throughout the day. And she actually enjoys all you guys being there. To, for that, making her comfortable with that makes me very happy. And I don't think I would have gotten that from any other contractor ever. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. We try. That's how I say we just yeah. try every day. Do you know they're going to be there for lunch after the job is done, too? <laughs> oh, that's fine. She'll do it every day. She don't care. <laughs> yeah, she keeps talking about it. But uh, you know, we're bringing the water out. and I, I, It's great. I tell you, I, more people talk about Dave than me. It's all about Dave. Now, if you notice, it's all about Dave. What's what's Dave want? Dave, what do you need, Dave? 
Uh, you know, Dave, you need a water? She comes over. Well, I, I'm standing right at the window, the back of the window where the family room is. And I said, Joanna, I'm, I'm right here. She's like, yeah, I know, but you're just sitting there and Dave's doing the work. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we, we are having such a blast with her. But it's the, and you know, there's some of the things like when I put the windows in a couple of days ago, so we're installing the windows and she was there and I was walking through the process, the, like the video that we did on the YouTube video, the Your Valuable Home Project Sugar exactly, Shack. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was step by step because I want her to see some of the things that were still under that once the window in, you, you can't really see. And then uh, Chuck, today I actually foamed those windows. So uh, I yeah. was showing her how the old window, they had an old window that was part of the house that we ripped out, which is the laundry room, that window's staying. And I said, look how shaky this window is. There was no insulation around it. There was nothing around it. I foamed it and it was maybe like a half hour later. And I said, let's try shaking this window. Your window now, Chuck, is insulated and it doesn't move and shake and you're going to have any leak problems anymore because it's foamed correctly. Oh, it, was it was leaking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they, well, you can see all the windows that he had were leaking at some point because when we took the siding off on the addition side that we were doing, uh, you could see I took pictures of the plywood and the plywood stained because of the water staining sure. from the windows yeah. leaking. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, again, set for the future. Now, that addition that we did, those windows are never going to leak. Now, Chuck, do you think that that right. application that we did uh, for your windows, was that something you were looking for? Yeah, because it all goes, I mean, it comes down to dollars and cents. I mean, when with the addition is, is the expense is what it is. But when, when you're done, you don't want to have issues with leaky windows, condensation, uh, a heating bill with unstable oil prices. And it's, you know, it's my mom. She's got to be warm. She's got to be comfortable. And I, I don't want to have any complaints. And I don't think that we're going to, because it is, you guys have taken every detail to heart and you, and you, and it shows. Well, thank you. I was actually putting in the, the vents, the dryer vent, and then the exhaust vent. And I was showing, Hey, Dwayne, this, this is the way we do it. So there's no issues with problems, how we tape it properly, how we put it through. And all this really starts to add up. Because I always tell people siding leaks, every siding leaks. It's not designed, vinyl siding is not designed to be waterproof. It's designed to shed water. It's, but it's what's water. under it that really matters. That's yeah. the key. Mm -hmm. And we put all the protected layers. We put Tyvek up once we framed all the walls with the roof on because I, I still don't want that wood getting wet. I mean, wood can get wet, but I, I just don't want it getting soaking wet. We've been having a lot of rain. And if that we didn't have anything covered or sealed, that would have been coming in the house probably about eight days out of the 10 that we started framing all the rain we were getting at nighttime, those heavy downpours. Mm -hmm. And it's not good for a house to be continual wet. So we got it secured as tight as possible and, and it works and we, there's no siding up and the, the thing's not leaking. I mean, have no. you seen any leaks in there, Chuck? No. I, and I check daily. No, it, it is, it is absolutely watertight inside there, even during construction from the very beginning, as soon as the roof was on, which is good. And it's very important because that just creates other problems. If you're putting an addition up and you got uh, framing members exposed and, and, and maybe you don't have uh, the roof shingled or whatever yet, how long can you go? I mean, if it rains for two weeks, is that a problem in them? Should, should it be wrapped? Uh, well, sometimes you can't. You know, sometimes if you're halfway framed and you can't, but wood can get wet. That's the thing. Wood can get wet. And once it's dried, you're, you're what still... What about OSB? Well, I, I don't use OSB. Chuck, I would, you know what OSB is, right? That flake board? Yes, yes. So what did we use on your house? It's 5-H plywood on the roof. Right, so CDX for that, and then CDX half-inch for the walls. Right. Well, here's why I overkill the roof, because over time, it sags. So when, when I was up on the roof, when we were put, I was putting the synthetics on, waiting for the day before the roof, just in case if it rained, uh, I was showing his mom, I said, look, look how the old roof bounces. And then when I went to the roof that we built, it doesn't even move. That difference makes uh, so much more in the longevity of the place. Now, granted, it's probably $8 a sheet more, which probably came out to about another $180. But what, what difference does that make? I mean, it's going to be, have more longevity to it. It's, right. That's what you want to do. It's going to be 70 years right. of perfect. Yeah. Well, $180, amortize that, it's the way to go. But the reason why we don't use OSB because of the breathable application of that. We're making this house tight enough, but it's not a complete envelope. And I was showing Chuck some of the things that we're going to be doing, like uh, the elevation of the foundation that we did is going to be much higher because the way we had set it up, we're going to be working on the floor level in this, but the, the part of the floor, we wanted to make sure that the framing members of the house walk in straight with where the foundation is, which is a slab on grade. So there it showed more foundation on the side of the house. 
So when Dave came up with an idea of, of bringing that plywood down over top of the foundation so we can side it and completely seal it off. Mm-hmm. So it looks more normal. Mm-hmm. But these are some of the things that, that we do. I mean, do you agree with us, Chuck, that we were trying to go above and beyond what the plan said? Oh, absolutely. And, and the other thing is, too, uh, that people, you know, taking on this type of project is you got to have a builder or contractor that's going to be willing to change as things progress. Because as you start looking at the plans and the outline on paper, then you actually see the walls going up and you think, hey, maybe I'd like something over here or maybe I'd like this over here. Uh, Kevin and all of his guys have been willing to, you know, change and do whatever we want, as long as it's not changing the structural outline of it and what's on the permits. But it's just moving things here, moving things there. And they're actually helping us with providing insight, put it here or don't do that. Maybe we'll go over this way with it as an example, just just to help us get through that and achieve what we want in the end for the final product. And still stay on schedule, right? Yeah. Yes, okay. absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so some days I got to be a little, little bit extra, but you know what? It goes a long way that those maybe the 45 minutes extra a day just to do what I need to do to make sure the homeowner's happy, especially like moving an air conditioner. Yeah. Ah, yeah, that was key. That was key. Uh, That was one of my things. I did not want to have as hot as it has been. I needed the air conditioner, and Dave and Kevin figured a way to make my air existing air conditioner last another week or two (laughs) before they could get it out. And it was it was very much appreciated, very much needed. (laughs) The joke was Chuck Sweat's eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and he refused to be at the house if we didn't have any air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So part of the addition is where the the condensate unit was on the outside. The condenser was there sitting on the outside. Well, over that had to be a slab that was poured to foundation. So what we did was we took the siding off. We built a platform on the side of the wall and took that whole unit from the outside and set it on a platform so Chuck could have air conditioning for the next two weeks that we were working on it. So we'll do whatever it takes to get it. If it's in reason, we did it. And look, we had to work a little bit extra to do it. We do it. Now the homeowner's happy. So that was a big part of it. And Kevin, if I, I, I want to add one more thing here. Yesterday, I spoke with you. I had a problem with a sump pump. And this is just normal homeowner stuff. Um, the sump pump wouldn't shut off in the middle of the night, so I had to get up and shut the breaker off. But I, I saw you yesterday morning, and I said, hey, I don't know what's on with the sump pump. Can you have the plumber take a look at it? He's, yeah, no problem. And the, the plumber was there, no, no sweat, no hassle. He ended up replacing the sump pump, and, and, he, and he left a little bit later in the day. But my home was back to 100% operating condition in as short notice just by pure luck. Good. Yeah, what's well, your home? So always want to make sure this is your home. You've got to make that final decision. So, yeah, plus that sump pump was old, too. That thing was yes, old. yes, it was. They don't have a long life, do they? Well, this is probably at least, uh, probably original. Without, it had to be a minimum 40 years old, this sump pump. It was definitely yeah. in the 90s, 80s, 90s. That's how old this thing was. So why not get it? Because uh, you, you don't want a leaky basement. Yeah, it's not going to last much. If, if it had life in it, <laughs> yes. maybe it's another 15 minutes or so. <laughs> That was it. So that's done and replaced. But that's what we're here for, to make sure that your service. Again, I, I keep saying to you, how many times have I said to you, well, why do you ask me for? Because this is your home. If you want to do it, then do it. Or if there's certain things I suggest, because again, this is your home. So right. I, what mom wants, we do. That's yes. I know a couple of times I came home, I'm like, well, listen, well, mom wanted it, so I just did it. I was no yeah. extra charge for it. I just did it because it's mom. I'm, if she wants it, I just want to make sure that she's happy. Even though it's your house, it's still mom. And that's what we try to provide. So what we're going to plan on doing is getting both of you on at the final because we're getting closer and closer to it. And yep. we'll just do step-by-step step some of the things, some design ideas so our homeowners can walk through. And we're going to put some pictures up as the show progresses with your mom on and every week that we keep doing it so our listeners can see exactly what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, that's no problem. All right, we'll okay. see you tomorrow morning. Well, Kevin, we got it's sort of a sad horror story today, don't we? Because this is a guy you've been working with for years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I right? Years? Yep. He's a roofer, and all of a sudden, everything's going south. What is going on? I don't know. Excuses are not one of the things that I, as my business, are inclined to do. I don't like excuses. And excuses are like, hey, you know, my dog ate my homework, that kind of excuse. Mm-hmm. I look, people have certain things. I, I get it. Uh, you could be a death in a family, something's happening. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. But when you give just stupid excuses... And it's job after job after job. And, and I see Give us an example. What, what, what's, an, what's a stupid excuse? One of our big things is that when we're selling a job, now this is what roofers, why I get so upset with them, because they don't offer homeowners 
an option to do it correctly. Now, this is the thing I, but I had that video, I saw the VHS step with me in 2005 talking about how to properly do the installation of ice shield. Right. So I tell homeowners and roofers that why don't you offer this as a bonus that if you properly want to get it done, because what I'm going to tell you, you'll never have a problem. We had GIF, the, the head guy Herb was on talking about, and he said, yeah, your way is better, but it does cost more money. I get it. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But when I tell a job that I'm on that, price that in. Why wouldn't the homeowner want to do it if they're never going to have a problem with it? I, I don't know. Yeah. Money? It's got to be money. Uh, but how much more money is it? It could be anywhere from 700 to $900 what, more. For, on a, for a whole roof? Yeah, for a whole roof. Okay, so what? I mean, what's it going to cost you if you've got to rip everything up and start over again? Or you well, get water in your house? Uh, it could anywhere from 1000 to 10000 Yeah, right, right. But that's only, so it's, it's an insurance policy. People figured things are never going to happen. Right, you know? and until it does. And I say it was a couple of years ago, just in our area outside of Northeast, or Pennsylvania area, we had that heavy snowstorm and everything started melting and thawing and refreezing. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I had thousands of calls at that time saying, I have damage. I'm like, well, it's what it is. It's ice damming. It's, this is why it's Coming happening. Up my under neighbors. The shingles, yeah. And I said for years and years, because when I built my house in 2004, the one house on Am's House Road, I had a problem. And that's why I tell people I had a problem because it, I had ice damming and I couldn't figure out why. So I got up there, saw that ice, lifted the drip edge up, which I don't use anymore. And it lifted it up and leaked inside the house. I know you and I went to a job and I looked at it and the same thing. It pushed up the drip edge metal, went right into the house. Yeah, my development. Yeah. 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 So I said years ago, almost 20 years ago, that we should run the ice shield below to the fascia and then run it up correctly onto the roof. 99% of everything is usually done right, but this is the one thing I'm really advocating on because it's a way of doing things that you'll never have a problem. It doesn't stop waste damming, but what it does is it prevents it from coming inside the house. So I tell my roofer that when you do it, please price this in because I don't want the homeowners coming back to me saying, hey, I'm having ice damming. So spend a little bit more, pull the gutter back. Uh, it's going to take a little bit more time, pay yourself a little bit more. So I got to the one job, this maybe four jobs ago that I had messed up and none of it was done correctly. So if I'm referring you and I didn't even know other jobs, cause I'm going to probably start going back. Cause I'm, I'm like that. I'm, I'm real spiteful. My wife tells me, I know I am, but I'm not, if you do the job, right, just do it right. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I, I, I couldn't get the, the, the spike and furl out. I'm like, well, you cut it with a multi-tool. Well, I don't have that. Use a sawzall. I'm looking at it right there. It'll take 30 seconds to cut not even to cut through it, pull the gutter back, run the ice shield down, because this roof that we were putting on is never going to need to be replaced in this guy's lifetime. So if you're talking about a 40-year warranty, 50-year warranty on it when you replace your roof, I'd rather have that insurance that I'm never going to have that problem. Oh, yeah, I would too. Absolutely. So, But if you don't do it now, it's not going to work later. So why not do it now? Well, he finally said to me, well, it's more money. I'm like, well, that's not my problem. My job is to tell the roofer, your boss, that this needs to be done and do it right. But if you don't do it and the roof's done already, there's no way to fix this. You have to rip up all the shingles because the ice shield's got to be dropped below the fascia and then ran, and then it's, I like two layers because it's got to be inside the house, the plane of the envelope of the house, which I think- So it's got to go up, how far up the roof does it have to go? Well, maybe two, three feet? Uh, sometimes more. So what I, I, I should have done a video uh, on the job we just completed. And what it is, is inside the house for homeowners. So if you look on the inside of your house, which is the outer wall, you look at the drywall, the outer wall, mm-hmm. come to the side of that wall where it comes back on the side of the house, measured 20 inches inside the house. Imagine taking a level, putting it on there and going straight up infinitely, infinitely to the, the roof line itself. So it infinity, could be up, infinity, 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 infinity okay, up there. Right, so right. take an infinity and beyond that line. Okay. That line is going to be deciding where that ice shield's got to be. And I see roofers probably about nine out of 10 times only doing one layer with a big soffit overhang and a high pitched roof. What's not even get inside the house? And they keep telling me, I'm like, hey, I asked questions to the people I went up to. Are your GAF certified? Well, this is done wrong. Well, no, it's not where GF certified. I said, just because you paid you $51 for the GF certification. Oh, is that what? That- yeah, it's just, I don't know what the exact cost is. Okay. But what they do is they say that they're, they're GF certified, but their subs are not doing it the right way because there's so no the, quality the, control. The guy who runs the company is certified and he may have the knowledge, but the subs, he just lets the subs do what the do. Do whatever you do. want. Yeah. Well, and they're not certified. Yeah, well, they're just, they're, they're guys installing. And half the guys you can't talk to anymore because they don't speak English. And, and I, I said to them, you got to do this. They're looking at me because they don't speak English. Well, that isn't my problem. The problem that I have is that if it's my customer 
and you're doing something wrong, I get upset about that. That's why, I mean, how many shows, Ron? You and I have been doing shows for almost 10 years. Well, it's so, your reputation. Exactly. Right. So if it's my reputation, I want it done. But right. it's not where I'm doing a job. I'm like, well, I'm going to try to make shortcuts. I'm over-enthusiastic about showing my customers exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it because it makes it a better job and better relationship. Mm -hmm. So there's no shortcuts. We've talked about how many times talking roofing. Take a picture of the new flashing you're putting Absolutely. in. Absolutely. And nobody wants to do that. And it's job after job. And not job. just an isolated picture. Take a, take a picture of everything, every new piece of flashing that you put in. Uh, you can just do that. And somebody could just put one piece of flashing and take a picture. Hey, it's done, right? No, it doesn't work that way. But because they don't get paid to do that. Right. So if you're not getting paid, people the subs are not going to do it. Well, not on my jobs. And it's when you go from job to job to job of making excuses... Well, we were on the, the the last job we were on, and he starts doing his work, doing everything, and I'm already at, at fire's end with this one. I said, look, I want a, a certain overhang on the roof. I said, and I don't want soldier courses up, which I don't like them. And What is that? So what a soldier what course is. is, is here's the way roofers think, is that they put a, sing, a shingle on the side, so when you look up from the bottom, it looks like one perfect shingle because it's matched up underneath, and it's just solid. Mm -hmm. What we used to do back in the day was... You, you have an overhang from the shingles. You strike out an inch, inch and a half, depending on what your overhang is. You make a mark, you chalk line it, and you cut a nice straight edge. Right. It looks professional, but it takes a little bit more time. So what roofers do is they just don't care, is they put the soldier course up, which is a shingle, the back of a shingle. So it looks smooth and continuous all the way up the rake board, and then the shingles go over top of it. So if it's a crooked cut, you can't see it from when you're looking up. You have to get up on the roof and look down. It probably is a crooked cut. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're working against the clock to get out of there and go to the next job, right? But again, that's not my problem. Right. I no, no, paid I for it. That. Yeah. So I have three jobs in a row. Well, one of them I just referred, and the homeowner called me up, and he said I was very upset with the roofer because we threw him off the job because this guy couldn't cut a straight rake. And it's a part where I can see out the, the bedroom window, the lower roof, and it was just cut sloppily done. And I'm like, well, I get it. If it's done sloppy from the beginning, what's the rest of the house look like? He's like, look, can you come over and just take a look at it? And the whole roof was like that. Have you have you had a problem like this in the past with any any guys that you use to do different things, drywall, roofing, whatever? No. So no. This, this is an unusual situation. It is. It is. But I, And look, you don't know why it happened or what? I, I think it's laziness uh, with the cost of inflation. A lot of products going up. Certain subs aren't getting paid more to do it. Mm. Uh, so maybe the, the owners could be taking more money, but not with me. Look, we charge a fair price. I'm not, look, I'm not going to be able to retire anytime soon. I have to work to provide for the family. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I know I can go home at night and say that I, I gave those homeowners a great job. I'm not into that gratification of just getting so I can get the sale and, and get money and just move on to the next. I mm -hmm. want to make sure that homeowners love what we do and see every aspect of it because that's what they're paying me for. So when you have a contract saying you're going to do it, do it. Yeah, absolutely. But excuse after excuse of not doing the right job. Well, and you it'll drive me crazy too. Drive anybody crazy. Right. My name's on it. Right. So if somebody comes out who really knows what they're looking at and saw this workmanship when they looked up and saw, oh, what would you do here? I'm like, well, I didn't really do it. It's the roofer screwed So what up. are you doing to find another roofer? you got to find uh, another roofer now. I right? don't know. That you're satisfied with, right? It's... Uh, how many times can you keep crying wolf and go into the well and get burned before you finally need to move on? Well, yeah, I understand that, but it may not be easy to find another roofer that does the job that you want done. I don't think anybody does. Here's why. Every roof every roof that I've physically seen from either New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that it's been done, I tell homeowners it was done wrong or could be done better. Do you want to bet? And homeowners are like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, do you want to bet me? I could show you the, and when I talk to contractors, I said, well, if you're really that good, if you're that good of a roofer, I get it, I understand. Let me come to your job. Let me pick jobs that you've done. I'll go to the supply house because I know the deliveries you got. Let me pick a delivery so you don't tell me what it is. Let me pick a delivery that was done in the last month or two, and you and I go to the job and take a look at it and see how well it's done. You know what you ought to do? Uh, revisit this. When you do, I mean, you got to look for a roofer now, like soon, right? Yeah, I don't really do much roofing. It's just on yeah, but additions. You could end up with a job with an addition tomorrow. Right? Yeah. A new, so you're going to have to be prepared for it, right? Mm-hmm. So we ought to re revisit this in terms of what you did to vet that other roofer that you're going to bring on the job now, right? Make sense? I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I like we got, it. We got to do that, and which is good. Which is good advice for the uh, for our homeowner listeners too, because. They got to do the same thing on their own, whether you're in California or wherever you are, Louisiana. 
you got to do the same thing. So your experience in terms of finding a new roofer is going to be invaluable for them. I like it. Yeah, let's have one. See, sometimes what I look at it is, you remember the, you ever get a cleaning lady or a cleaning man or whoever's going to come to your house and do a cleaning service? You ever notice when they first that, that service, when they start working like the first month, they're phenomenal. Everything, yeah. Right. And then as you keep oh, going in two done, months. Been there, done that. All right, so you know what I'm getting at. After three months, you're like, I paid you. You didn't do this. You did it last time. You're not going to do it now. And how they get worse at it. People get comfortable with what you're doing, so they're going to make into shortcuts. So yeah. that's the other thing that it's going to be the tough part to vet. Yeah. So I get it from the beginning. Well, yeah, you don't know until you until you use that person uh, probably over a protracted period of time because they're going to they're going to be wanting to please you up front, but are they going to be good for the long haul? That's the question. Let's revisit this and see what it takes to find that other roofer. Okay. Okay. I like it. Well, right. I say we bring a couple of roofers on to talk about it and see who wants to. Uh, be the new VSP home remodeling's top go. roofer to there come on go. there and say that we highly recommend you because I just don't want excuses. And look, one thing I will tell you this with our listeners that I don't know of any roofer that actually physically does the work. Like when I did it back in the 90s, I was the one doing the work. It starts to wear on you. I know I'm one sure of the, it does. I think it was one of the jobs that was done in my neighborhood where I actually went down to the guy and uh, he said he was the owner doing the work, which was unusual. And I gave him the benefit of the doubt. But all the things he was doing were wrong. And I set the guy up. I said, oh, listen, I heard on the show called Your Valuable Home that you're doing the ice shield wrong and you're doing this wrong. And why aren't you replacing the flashing? And uh, he just gave me a whole bunch of excuses. And I said, well, uh, that's I'm going to have to pass on doing that job. And uh, it was right down from my house that he saw me pulling out with my truck. I tell you, if I'd never seen a jaw drop when he saw my truck after all the answers he was giving me. Like I said, the step flashing. I'm like, why don't you replace step flashing? He goes, it's aluminum. It's not, not wrong with it. I said, it's all bent up, ripped, and it's got a hole in it from the last shingle. That nailed through it. There's a hole in it. Yeah, you sh- see, you shouldn't have to explain that stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, right. You should replace it because I'm yeah. sure in the contract it says we're going to replace it. You shouldn't it. have to get into it. He should know that it's got to be replaced. Just do it. Right, because I always ask homeowners, the stuff I'm telling you to do are going to be a, a, be a good help for you. So what I look at is when do you do your roofs? Do you do a roof every year, every two years? Like the roof that you just put on your place. Is that going to last one year, two years? Five years, 40 years. Well, the shingle, I mean, the shingles are uh, warranted for what, 25 years? They're all probably 40. They'll let you get 40 well, years out of it. They didn't last that long the first time around. They, they were they were warranted for 25 and 18, we had to replace them. All right, so if you get 20 years out of it, it's 20 years. 20 years. So why not do something good in the labor part that it's going to last you 20 years without a problem? I'm all for it. So that's what okay. we're going to do. Good okay. idea, Ron. All right. Nice work out of you. Super. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kevin here, installing another Provia entry door. I do about 50 or more a year. Schlage knobs, hardware, and handle sets make a great complement to any Provia fiberglass or steel entry door. Provia and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. Provia and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. Okay, Ron, now we are getting to part two of the very interesting segment that we got for a featured segment. What do we have? As you know, we are doing this series all with the Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy, over a number of weeks now on what's happening with energy alternatives in America. And we want our audience to know about that. So that'll happen over the next several weeks with frank discussions with subject experts from the U.S. Department of Energy, all U.S. Department of Energy, to help our listeners understand how we'll power the U.S. going forward. What impacts emerging energy alternatives, solar, wind, nuclear, hydrogen, will have on the country as a whole, different regions in the U.S., right on down to the individual homeowner. Today, we have with us Garrett Nilsson, Deputy Director, Solar Energy Technologies Office at the U.S. Department of Energy, to discuss the solar option. Garrett, welcome to Your Valuable Home. Good to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Really appreciate you making me a guest and excited for this segment and what sounds like a number of segments with my colleagues. Yeah, we're looking forward to it all. And there are a lot of questions, you know, that come up. And I know that there are a lot of options coming down the pike and we want to put those out there for our our audience. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What percentage of total energy today is provided by solar? Solar energy is providing about 5% of the U.S. electricity supply. And this is up from, you know, well less than 1% over a decade ago. And so while this might seem like a modest number, it has been growing in leaps and bounds. And the amount we see growing every year, we expect to see to continue into the future. But it's about 5% today, with some states getting over 20% on their own, like California. Um, and other states getting somewhat less, but across the country, it's about 5%. 
And what do you see happening here in terms of change over the next 20 years or so? Deploy, deploy, deploy. So with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act incentives in place, we expect to see a large uptick in deployment. A few years ago, uh, the, our office released something called the Solar Future Study, which looked at what role solar generation will play in the U.S. decarbonization goals. And so by our numbers, if we're going to decarbonize the electricity grid by 2035 uh, in, in line with the president's goals, we'll need to have, have about 40 percent of our electricity coming from solar energy. And that's up from 5 percent today. So the next 20 years or so, we're going to see a lot of solar deployment and a lot of other technologies that support solar, such as storage being deployed as well. Is that solar deployment in residential housing or is it a combination of residential and commercial? How does that work? That's all solar that we expect out of it. So it's a combination of residential, commercial, and utility. So today, about two-thirds of the solar that is deployed is in utility-scale format, with the remainder being made up by residential and commercial uh, deployments, which are predominantly rooftop deployments. For which regions of the country does solar hold the greatest potential? Everyone's initial thoughts go to sunny areas. And of course, the Southwest of the United States, some of the sunniest real estate on the planet, and that is a place where we see it providing you know, a, a lot of generation. But the great thing is that solar can work in essentially any climate. I mean, if you look at, you know, go back a few years, Germany was the leader of solar deployment in the world. And, you know, they're on a similar latitude as kind of like the Northern 48 states and Southern Alaska. So we're actually in a position where we have a tremendous solar resource crossing the country. We've seen much of the growth in the southwest but we expect to see more growth in the southeast the northeast there's been a fair amount and so it's a long way of saying that we expect to see solar deployed nationwide but of course you know the more sun you have the more electrons you can produce so areas with the most direct sunlight would tend to think to perform best but we see solar as a complete nationwide solution so which states currently make the most of uh, large-scale solar installations yeah, so the states have really been driving things forward are California, and we've seen a huge growth as well in Texas. And so these are areas, you know, where there's either incentives in place where the power markets are constructed such that they're very advantageous for solar deployment, and it doesn't hurt that they get a lot of sun as well. But we see states like North Carolina is quickly approaching uh, one of the is one of the leading states as well, and we see some others in the southeast, also southwest, and other parts in the U.S. that are, are gaining rapidly as well. So it's a striking fact that Texas is way up the scale in terms of solar solar deployment and wind deployment too, and you're talking about a state that basically is a petroleum producing state. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do is a testament, one, to how low the cost is for electricity from solar and wind resources. It has come down precipitously. But it also has to do with just how the market in Texas is created. I mean, essentially, in, in Texas, it's an unregulated market, so you can build your assets, and then you're bidding in to be the lowest bidder on the grid. And so now that we're seeing wind and solar assets become so cheap, they're very competitive in a market that is structured like that, which is why we've seen such a massive amount of deployment in Texas over the recent years. Okay, and if the, if the state is deploying, what are these large-scale solar installations, what are they powering now? So the large-scale systems are going into the electric grid writ large. And so in that case, they're just kind of increasing the mix of the energy across that utility territory, increasing the amount of solar and wind in that utilities mix. And so if they had no solar, you know, a year ago and they've installed a large solar system today, then they're going to see a commensurate increase in the, the mix of the electricity, of how the electricity is generated. So, you know, across the U.S., you know, where I am in D.C., we get a mix of coal, we get a mix of natural gas, we get a mix of some other assets as well. And so as more renewables get deployed, we're just upping the percentage of that mix that is coming from non-carbon assets. So solar can be integrated with other other new forms and, and older forms of energy as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, this is one of the, the challenges that folks saw a few years ago. We've been working very hard at the Department of Energy to make sure that everything can work symbiotically. So just to get maybe a quick into the details, you know, when you have a large, let's say, coal plant or natural gas plant, you have a large spinning turbine. So this helps the grid maintain its frequency at 60 hertz. So it's this big physical asset that's spinning. That's something that's not there in something like solar or wind. We have what are called inverter-based assets. So it's just a digital kind of output. And so we've invested large amounts of money and done a lot of research development and demonstration work 
to show that solar storage, wind, and other in what we call inverter-based assets can provide the services to the grid to maintain stability, to maintain frequencies, maintain required voltages, and so forth. And so we believe that you know the, the technology that will be deployed with solar and wind assets in the future will be more than up to the challenge to make sure that we have a reliable and secure grid in the future and that all of the assets that are called on to create electricity for U.S. consumers can work together. Correct me if I'm wrong, but are we talking about Texas? Doesn't Texas have their own grid? I mean, when people talk about the grid, it really isn't the grid. It's the grid's plural, isn't it? Yeah, so there's essentially three grids in the United States. So there's the Eastern Interconnect, which is roughly kind of Mississippi, the Mississippi River and East. There's the Western Interconnect, which is everything west of the Mississippi River, except for Texas. And then Texas, which has its own standalone kind of grid that's disconnected from everybody else, which allows them to kind of regulate it in its own way as it doesn't have to deal with interstate commerce and things of that nature. So essentially, we have three main grids here in the United States. Well, I should say the contiguous lower 48. Does Texas, with any excess power that they're generating there, do they have the ability to send it out to either one of the other two grids or both of them? So there is some limited ability to move electricity between grids. I'm not going to go deep into this. This is a little bit outside of my area of expertise. But, you know, in situations where there is more generation that can be used, you know, most of the time that just sends electricity prices even lower to incentivize other people to come up with different ways that you can be using electricity. But at this point, the electricity basically stays inside of each of the three interconnects that I mentioned. So overall, how does solar rank in terms of all emerging forms of energy, in terms of cost to implement, maintain, and carbon reduction? Yeah, so in terms of cost, you know, the the International Energy Agency has you know, identified solar as the cheapest energy source available. And what's really great about that is that we see lines of sight to be lowering the costs even further. So that's one kind of, of positive part. The other is, is that solar is inherently kind of modular, so you can build it as small or as large as you want. So that's why we can see solar covering large fields, but we can also see solar covering modest rooftops. So there's a flexibility to solar that is that is really great there. And then, in, you know, you had mentioned uh, carbon reduction. And one thing we try to think about is kind of the energy payback period. So how much energy does it go into making a solar module and how quickly does it generate that energy back? And by our calculations, it's about a little bit less than a year at this point. So a certain amount of energy goes into making a module. And after that module is operated for a year, it's generated enough energy, the same amount of energy it took to make itself. And then for the next, you know, 19 to 24 years, that's additional energy that's created. And so that's kind of one measure in terms of thinking about carbon reduction. And of course, the other part is, is what is that solar displacing? So if you're in an area that has a lot of coal generation, then you're going to see more carbon displaced by that solar asset. If you see an area where there is, say, more natural gas, then you might see slightly less carbon displaced, I should say. So that means that solar power storage and long-distance solar power transmission is improving substantially too, right? Yeah. So, you know, first starting with storage, I mean, it's been very exciting. With the kind of EV revolution that's sweeping the U.S. and the country, we've seen the price of lithium-ion batteries come down dramatically, and we see them continuing to go down. So this has been great in terms of near-term storage or storage that could be used at individual homes or businesses or things of that nature. The DOE is looking at kind of longer-term storage assets. So the question we're asking is, how can we store energy for weeks or months or seasons? And so we're looking at some other kinds of technologies there so that we can fill those gaps. And we're very confident we'll be able to find those technologies and get them deployed. With regard to transmission, solar uses the same transmission grid as everyone else. So we're looking at ways that we can make those transmission assets more efficient, so less line losses. And then, of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in in Congress and in other places about deploying more transmission in the United States to allow all this energy to move from one spot to the other as well. We're seeing improvements in, in, in all of these technologies, and particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're expecting to see a lot of deployment of both storage and transmission in the years to come, which is very exciting. With the increasing popularity and deployment of solar, Uh, Going forward, is there adequate solar domestic and international product production to keep pace with all of this? So solar was, you know, kind of invented here in the United States, but it's no secret now the majority of, of products are made in Asia. So one thing that's great about the Inflation Reduction Act is it's put incentives in place for us to repatriate the supply chain 
And we're looking to figure out how, what is that scale of deployment that we need to be sure that we can get you know, our domestic needs from domestic sources. So that is something where work will need to be done, but we're very excited about the announcements that companies have been making today about their planned expansions. And there are quite a few that plan to be coming in the U.S. You know, internationally, as more and more countries take climate change seriously, there's going to be a greater and greater interest in folks going solar. We can get the assets that we need to be able to deploy in the U.S. And we expect to see, you know, the global manufacturing capacity to continue to grow, to keep pace with the massive demand, not only from the United States, but the, the globe writ large. So it's a, it's a very large expansion that we're expecting to see over the years to come as, you know, supply aligns itself with the massively growing demands. How do large scale solar installations compare to wind farms, nu- nuclear, hydrogen as a power source. Now, I understand that nuclear and hydrogen, they're sort of like a little bit behind and they're emerging more slowly than solar and wind, but how do they compare? I think a good way to think about each of those is what is the unique value that they're going to bring to the grid when we think about a grid of the future? So, you know, solar obviously generates its electricity during the day. So it has kind of can really provide what we need when the sun is out. You know, wind is a great complementary source and that the predominance of the heaviest winds in the United States actually blow at night. So solar and wind kind of complement each other in that way. Well, nuclear is an asset that is best run, you know, kind of continuously as what we call a base load asset. And you need those important things that are going to be able to operate day or night, 24-7 to be able to help with the grid writ large. And then hydrogen is still emerging um, you know, we're definitely excited to see it both as a way through which to, to move energy from one spot to the other, to use it as a generation source. And we see a role for solar and wind and nuclear even in being um, powering the systems that will subsequently create hydrogen. So it's, it's a great intermix of all these technologies. I mentioned earlier that we had done a look out to what the energy mix would look like in 2035. You know, solar ended up, as I said, being about 40% covering 40% of electricity demand. Wind is in the neighborhood of about 36%. Nuclear is about 12%. And with a, a number of other technologies making up those last bits like hydropower or geothermal. And then hydrogen is, is a great asset that kind of sits in between all this stuff, which allows us to move what might be electricity into other processes, say like uh, decarbonizing industrial processes and so forth. So there's a a great kind of um, symbiosis between all of these technologies that we're really excited to see how they'll play out in the years to come. Okay, what what specific advances in solar technology, either current or in development, we don't know what's coming down the pike, could accelerate the adoption of large-scale solar power generation? Yeah, so when we think like large-scale, and in this case, I'm going to think about this as kind of utility plants. You know, I think part of it is just the continuing driving down the cost curve of the solar modules that we see today. We've also funded uh, very early on some companies. There's a company out there called TerraBase that is looking to really automate the manual processes that go towards deploying large-scale systems so that they can be installed more quickly. Another big area is going to be how we connect all of this stuff to the electric grid. So there's a process called interconnection that all assets need to go through in order to connect to the grid. And the DOE is investing heavily to make that process as seamless as possible. And then, of course, you know, when we think about kind of smaller scale systems and how they'll play into the kind of larger solar generation, you know, we're working a lot through a program called SolSmart with local communities to try and make them kind of more open for solar business. So how do we look at your permitting practices, your zoning practices, and a variety of other things? And so this program, I should say, for those that are interested, is provides no-cost technical assistance to local governments um, who are trying to figure out how to become more solar-friendly. And we're also rolling out other products that are looking at you know, automating permitting, something called our solar app which is also available through, for free through the National Renewable Energy Lab. So there's a lot of technologies here that are really focused on streamlining the deployment of solar, because in terms of the, the modules themselves and the hardware, it's all, it's all in really great shape and really low cost at this point, where we feel like it can be deployed massively into the future. And we'll keep our eye out for promising technologies, but right now we're really just trying to hit the accelerator and getting what we know works out into the market today. Yeah, it's interesting uh, you mentioned that uh, because I live in a HOA-run community. It's a it's an active adult community, and it seems to me, I mean, we we probably, I, I know we do. We have we would have uh, prohibit uh, provisions against 
the installation of solar on the roofs of the, of the houses now. But it seems to me it makes a lot of sense to allow it, especially like in a clubhouse situation. Yeah, intuitively, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I know each uh, HOA kind of has their own special politics, their own special way of doing things and so forth. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there are the ways to work through that. But I, I agree with you on that front. But, you know, one other thing that has us really excited uh, in the solar office is we also try to figure out what are some new kind of business models that might allow more people to access solar. And so one of the ones that's come up in the last four or five years that's really starting to get a footing of its own is what is called community solar. So a community solar system is kind of a, a larger scale solar system that is deployed somewhere else. Maybe it's in a field, maybe it's on the top of a large building or something of that nature, where people who are in an HOA or maybe an apartment owner or so forth can subscribe to that system and get credited with that solar generation against their bill. Or in some instances, the business model is kind of you purchase a small part of that system. So you purchase 10 modules out of a field of thousands. And then through kind of different billing structures, you get credited that solar generation to your electric bill. So this is a way for people to go solar who might not own the roof that they live under, live in an apartment building, live in an HOA, or even own a house. They own their roof, but they're just have some beautiful trees that they don't want to knock down or anything like that or kind of shade constraint. Now for the homeowner, the individual homeowner, are solar shingles a viable alternative to solar panels? So solar shingles are definitely a topic of interest that people have had their eye on for quite a few years now. And whether it's something that's kind of like the tile fancy form factor with a place like Tesla or kind of other form factors from other companies, it is something that's continually been coming. But, you know, it is something that is is a slightly higher cost module than, than what you would have kind of in the more traditional module setup. And, you know, there are some kind of added costs in terms of how it might need to be installed and things of that nature. So, you know, they are certainly viable in the fact that if someone really values aesthetics, like this, this is a way that you can deploy solar and maintain a certain aesthetic appearance of your house, but they are slightly more expensive and they might be better suited for maybe, you know, integration for new construction, or if you're replacing your roof, that'd probably be the best time to look into to something like shingles. Where are most solar panels and shingles currently manufactured? Today, most solar modules and solar products are constructed in Asia and predominantly in China. China, you know, has huge sections of the market of the products that go into modules. So most modules today are silicon. As an example, you need to create what are called silicon wafers to turn into cells. And China has about 97% of the world's capacity in silicon wafers. Although through the Inflation Reduction Act, we're trying to change that here in the United States. And so that's where a a vast majority of modules are coming from, is is from Asia, although we're seeing more interest in setting up manufacturing capacity in the U.S., in Europe, and other locations as people try to think about what supplies they'll need to deploy um, more broadly. In terms of shingles, I'll I'll admit, I don't know right off the the top of my head exactly where most of them are made. You know, I know uh, Tesla has some shingle assembly facilities here in the United States. Uh, There's a company, GAF, that also has a shingle product, but I'm forgetting exactly where those are made. But those are made in much smaller quantities than the traditional modules that that we all kind of see in fields or see on roofs today. Probably because of the expense. Yeah, it's that. I also think it might have something to do with the number of installers who are qualified to actually make those, to do those installations. But that is something that is more more of a speculation on my part. But I think that has something to do with it as well. Um, I don't know if shingles are available in all markets today as, as much as people want to see that growth. Though, Is there a downside to solar for residential applications? And if so, how would that be resolved? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little biased as someone who has solar on my roof um, and it works for the solar industry to say that, like, you know, I I see just a lot of upside to it. You know, personally, I love the fact that I'm I'm generating my own electricity. It's something that is was very easy to install and very easily integrated into into my house. And it's going to leading me to to much, much lower electricity bills. And, you know, I can even even make some money in some instances, given the the incentives here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I think the, the biggest thing, you know, 
where upfront cash might be a barrier to some people. You know, systems do, not, they're relatively expensive, but they will pay themselves off in relatively short order. Of course, that varies depending on where you live in the United States. And there are a number of different products out there to try to make that upfront cash, you know, uh, less necessary. Whether it's seeing more and more loan products out there or other different ownership models where someone else might own the system on your roof and kind of lease it back to you. So there's a variety of different ways. And so I think the, the biggest thing is probably that upfront cost that gives people some heartburn. But once it's in place, uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits that can be gleaned for the homeowner. How long will solar shingles remain operational in a home? And then how long will solar panels remain operational in a home? So in, in both of these cases, they're being warranted on the order of 20 to 25 years. And, you know, for a solar module, when people say that it's kind of a not producing at its, you know, it's no longer producing, and I'm doing air quotes, as I guess, as I'm saying this, is, you know, when it's at about 80% of its original capacity. But that module can still be used into the future. And so we're not exactly sure what the, what the end life of all modules is going to be in terms of when they will stop producing completely. And they might produce even a small amount for, for many, many decades. But at this point, you know, residential products are being warranted on the order of 20 to 25 years, which is about in line with how often everyone needs to get their roof redone or things of that nature. Well, solar panels and shingles withstand what seems to be much harsher weather conditions than we've been experiencing in the past. If we're thinking about high winds, you know, something that we might see from a hurricane or so forth, you know, there are, you know, extra standards around, say, the coast of Florida and things like that on how something needs to be adhered to your roof. And there are many racking companies that certainly meet those standards. And we expect to see, you know, those, provided the, the structure underneath is okay, uh, we expect to, see, to expect those modules and those systems to be okay as well. Same thing goes for ground-mounted system, where in some areas they put in extra constraints just to make sure that they are wind-worthy. You know the the warmer heat. We're still studying about what the impacts are at this point, but you know many modules have been deployed in very hot and dry areas for a long time, but we're pretty very confident about them to being able to continue to generate. I think the bigger challenge is for solar, particularly comes from things like hail, where there isn't really a way to to block or avoid or design for something like hail, even though we're looking at to what kind of design structures might be able to help mitigate some impacts. But we're, we're taking a very hard look at making sure that these assets are durable in, in any possible weather future. And, and we're confident that they, they will be in, in, in many, many cases. Are big U.S. home builders, i.e. a Pulte or Toll Brothers, in favor of solar for powering new developments? I think they're in favor of what will help them sell more homes. <laughs> so, you know, so like these days, you know, we're seeing more and more home builders offer solar as an option where you could have a home that might be, say, solar ready or actually have the solar already installed. But they're giving that more of an option for people if they're looking at building a system. You know, certainly the, the new laws in California that are requiring, you know, houses to have solar or be solar ready are also driving the, that market forward as well. You know, as more and more people get interested in solar energy, about where the electricity comes, having a lower carbon footprint and so forth, you know, I expect to see more of these more of these home builders try to differentiate themselves by offering solar or different packages as it relates to renewable or low carbon energies. What would it cost to power a an average size house, 3,000 uh, square feet uh, with solar today? Of course, you know, this this all varies a little bit, but for like the typical average cost of installing a residential system to say today per the National Renewable Energy Lab is around $19,000. This cost can can change, you know, depending on where you live, the size of the system you choose and things of that nature. Um, but that's that's roughly about how much a, a system costs for the average residential household today. And are there energy credits to be had uh, from uh, the federal government by homeowners for getting into solar? Yes. So there is a 30% investment tax credit. And this is one of the things that we have a great resource on. So it's kind of a homeowner's guide to the federal tax credits, which we'll share with you and your listeners. We also have a homeowner's guide to going solar, which gives you all the questions and things you should be thinking about asking as you think about going solar and some information on this. But yes, so there's a 30% investment tax credit where if you, let's say, you know, pay $20,000 for your system, this gives you a $6,000 credit against your federal taxes. Now, this is something that can be used over multiple years, so it doesn't have to be used all at once. 
or if you're someone who doesn't have the tax appetite to, to do that, there are kind of ownership models that will allow someone else to maybe realize that tax credit gain and then reduce the cost of the system to you. So in some cases, there's what's called kind of a, a third-party lease where essentially a third party pays for the system. They take that tax credit, they put it on your roof, and then lease it back to you at a reduced rate than it would have cost you had you paid for all of it out of your pocket. There is also kind of loan products as well. They say, we will keep the tax credit and we'll just lower the overall cost of the system to you. This is something that was offered to me when I, when I got my solar system years ago as well. So it depends on your tax appetite. Um, solar installers will be able to help explain this to you. And if it, and it makes sense, you know, maybe talk to your financial professional or whoever does your taxes to make sure you understand if it makes sense for you to, to keep that tax credit or find a different way to monetize it. Good advice. Very good advice. Can a homeowner today sell excess solar energy to a local utility? For instance, I'm considering Inspire in our area. If I had solar on my roof, can I sell my power back to them or can they give me a credit for my power? Hey, uh, it's different based on different territories, but the answer essentially is yes. So in some areas, they have what is called net energy metering. So if I develop a kilowatt hour that I'm not going to be able to use, my local utility will credit me that kilowatt hour against something used at, at another time. So maybe it's at, at 9 p.m. And so in that case, it's kind of a one-for-one swap. In some instances, there are utilities that won't offer net energy meeting metering and they might compensate you at say a, a different rate. So in some cases they might compensate you at a little bit less than your residential rate to just account for the cost of them to having to pipe that electricity somewhere else through the wires. In some instances they might just compensate you at the, the bulk electricity rate. So this is what they would pay to say a large scale electricity generator. So it all kind of depends on the territory itself, but there is a way to get some sort of form of compensation. And of course, one other way to kind of realize that compensation is to have home storage. In that case, you can just hold on to those electrons in your battery and then deploy them when it makes the most economic sense for you. So there's a variety of different ways of doing it, but it's a long way of saying that, yes, there are ways to deliver your electrons back to the grid and get some form of compensation from your local utility. And there are enough manufacturers out there today, different brands of home storage? There's a lot of people getting into the home storage space. So Tesla and Generac are certainly two. There's a group called Sonnen Battery out of Germany that's very involved and a number of others that I'm, I'm forgetting offhand. So again, as I was mentioning, you know, with the EV revolution we're seeing and more and more just lithium-ion batteries being produced in general, we're seeing these costs come down. And so at this point, just about every residential installer that I talk to has some sort of home storage solution that they're trying to offer to their customers. And so the question for any homeowner is, you know, what do I want that backup for power for and for how long? So if you're looking to power your house for days because you're way out the end of a, a power line and you might lose your power for days at a time, then you might want to look at something slightly larger. If it's just kind of smaller amounts of time you expect it might be out of power, or you only really want to make sure that like I want my <laughs> I want my air conditioner and my refrigerator to run and I can care less about everything else, then you might need a smaller battery system. But there are a lot of products out in the market and even more to come. So when a lot of people talk about solar, the, the big question always comes to my mind is disposing of that product, say in twenty years when the, the product life expectancy is is done. Has the DOE thought about anything about future, you know, in the process of disposing the product? Just thinking in my mind, or actually reusing the product. Yeah, and so we're we're looking into to all of these. And so this is something that, you know, not only the U.S. is interested, but the whole international community. As you know, we don't want to see, you know, modules just go into landfills or things of that nature. So we're looking at, we're investing in stuff that can look at how do we repurpose modules how can we refurbish modules to get them back to their closer to their original state? And then also looking at like, how can we recycle these? So like, how can we remove the glass and figure out a way to either recycle the glass or, or downcycle the glass or use it? How can we figure out how to reuse the silver and the silicon and other things like that that are inside of the module as well? So we have some very active research programs in this space and expect to invest more in the future. And we expect to be very active in this space, both you know with our research, but also in the broader international community where you know, many groups in Europe, Australia and elsewhere are thinking very, very hard about this, this question as well. Sounds like a lot of bases are covered here. Do you have any educational programs that you want to point us to that we can uh, promote? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll send some links along, but there's the homeowner's guide to going solar is a great place for people to start if they're thinking about going solar at their house. Complementary to that, we have the homeowner's guide to the federal tax credit, which can kind of give you a deeper lay of the land and do some of the math on how to think through the tax credits itself. We have a checklist for smart shopping. If you're a homeowner, we have a community solar basics plan, which also talks about just community solar and, and what kind of option it would be for you. And we even have a kind of a, a business's guide to going solar as well, which covers what could for and nonprofit businesses think about or how should they approach potentially going solar. So we're, we're doing as much as we can to make all of these available as, as, as available and public as possible. And we certainly welcome uh, your help in circulating them to your, your very informed and enthusiastic audience. Well, you've got it. If we can get the links, we'll get them out there. And as new developments come down the pike with you and solar, please give us a ring, let us know, and we'll We'll have you back on again. No, really, really appreciate that. And yeah, I want to thank you all for your, your role in kind of educating the consumer as well. It's going to take a lot of us to really make this decarbonized future reality. And we need to make sure that we're giving everybody with uh, some skin in the game or particularly dollars to, to spend or that they're worried about all the information they need to make an informed decision. And so I just want to thank you for inviting me on here. We'll send some resources. And yes, I'll absolutely reach out in the future as we have more exciting developments to share, which I am sure we will. Hey, Kev, great news on how long listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship, the Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 